You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Book of Galatians, chapter 4. When you found your place, we'll bow our heads and ask God's blessing on our time before we begin. And Father, we do thank you again for your word, and we thank you for the confidence that we have that when we open your word and our hearts are before it, that you will sanctify us and that you will encourage us and equip us. We pray today that as a, as a result of our time spent here, God, that you would draw us closer to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to reflect upon those things which are of most significance and most importance. And may your Spirit be our teacher today as we look at these things. And bless this time as we gather together as your people. Draw us closer to you, closer to one another, and closer to your word, we pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, I was originally going to discontinue in the book of John for this morning and then do a Christmas Eve service or a Christmas sermon on Christmas Eve. But we kind of reached a point in the Gospel of John where we can pause and take a break without sort of disrupting the flow too much. So I decided what we would do instead is take a look at a Christmas theme, but not from what we would call a traditional Christmas text, as it were, but a text that maybe you don't associate with Christmas, but it certainly describes, at least from God's perspective, the Christmas event, the incarnation of Jesus, and what resulted from it. And that's here in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at a couple of verses there. Typically, we associate with Christmas or Christmas time the traditional Christmas texts like Matthew 1 and Luke 1 and 2 and, and uh, Matthew 2 even, and our thoughts are kind of centered around the, the temporal unfolding of those events. And we're familiar with the characters, the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and Herod and the wise men, though they came a long time after the birth of Jesus. We typically associate those with that first Christmas night or evening, as it were. And then we're also familiar with a lot of the setting, the fields and the shepherds out in the fields and the stars and the angelic hosts and the manger and the no room at the inn and Mary and Joseph traveling and staying in Bethlehem and all of the stuff that's associated with that. And all of those things warm our hearts after a fashion, and they should to some degree. But if in our reflection on Christmas and if our consideration of Christmas things at this time of the year does not take us past those things as important as they are, they're still sort of surface-level issues. If our reflection on Christmas doesn't take us to something much more deep and profound, and by that I mean the theology of Christmas itself, then really we have missed Christmas. And if our hearts are worn by the carols and the eggnog and the time with family and the presents and the trees and the lights and the festivities of all of it and the nice meal on Christmas Day, and if all of that warms our hearts and we're sort of drawn together by all of that and we do go through the process of singing the carols and spending time with family and giving gifts and reflecting upon all of those things, but we don't dive deeper into Christmas and look at the results of Christmas and the theology of Christmas, then we really do ourselves a disservice and we haven't done anything more than just really scratch the surface and deal with very shallow issues. As important as those things are, they're shallow compared to the theology of redemption that is present in Christmas. There is a reason why Jesus Christ came to this earth, and it wasn't just to warm our hearts and give us a reason to give gifts. It wasn't just so that we could write songs about it. 
The reason that Jesus Christ came to this earth was to save his people from their sins, to redeem us. Christmas is about redemption and the redemption that is brought to us as a result of what Christ did and the incarnation of the Son of God. Christmas is about redemption. And that's what's discussed in Galatians chapter 4. And we're going to look at verses 4 and 5 this morning. And I want you to read them together with me. Verse 4. Actually, let's jump up to verse 1. Now I say, as long as as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, and that we might receive the adoption as sons. I don't, not somebody who likes to just sort of jump into the middle of a book and take a couple of verses and preach on it, because it's very easy for us when we do that to miss the context and the argument and the flow of everything going on around it. And it would be very easy for a preacher in taking a couple of verses like that to isolate them away from the context and for you to have no idea really what's being spoken of around them. So in order to give you an idea of what's going on, I want to give you a very brief, as brief as I can, overview of the whole context so we can sort of fit these two verses, verses 4 and 5, into the whole argument of the book of Galatians. One of the benefits of beginning at the beginning of a book, which is always a good place to begin, and continuing through to the end of the book, which is always a good place to end, and dealing with everything in between, is that we already have the context, and we already have the flow, and we understand what's going on around it, and I don't need to take the time to to do what I'm about to do. But when you dive into the middle of something like this, we want to take the time to set the table, as it were, before we begin to look at the details. So let me tell you what's going on in Galatians. Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul, and it was written after his first missionary journey to a group of churches that he started, and you can read the record of that in Acts chapter 13 and Acts 14, those two chapters, detail Paul's first missionary journey. And he had planted a a group of churches in Asia Minor in the region of Galatia, and then after his first missionary journey, when he returned back to his home city, his sending church of Antioch, he had heard that there were people who had come into the church and had begun to teach these new converts, both Jews and Christians, that faith in Christ was not sufficient to save them. It would only take them so far. But what they really needed was to keep the law of Moses. And they had to be circumcised and keep the festivals and the feasts and the Sabbaths and all of that. They couldn't abandon the law of Moses. They had to keep the law of Moses, not only for their salvation, but also for their sanctification. Not only to be declared righteous, but also to be made righteous in practice. So they were saying that both their salvation and their sanctification hinged upon keeping the law of Moses. Faith in Christ was good, but it only got you so far. You needed to add something to that, and what you needed to add to that was obedience to the law. All the ceremonies of the law, all the the rules and regulations of the law, the law of Moses, particularly circumcision. Circumcision was was sort of their niche thing. That was what they really emphasized. So Paul sits down, when he hears that this is going on, he sits down and he writes this letter of the Galatians to those churches. And Paul understood something that you and I should understand, and that is that such a teaching, that Christ gets you so far and you need the law to get you the rest of the way, is not just a quirky Jewish take on the gospel. It was an entirely different gospel. In fact, it is a gospel that cannot save. And if you are trusting in Christ plus Anything else, you name it, that faith will damn you. It will not save you. 
And it will not save you because you are not trusting in Christ and Christ alone. We are not free to add things to the gospel. We must preach and teach and embrace the gospel as it is, and that is by faith and faith alone. So the gospel that they were teaching to the Galatians, that is these heretics who had crept into the church and began leading people astray, was a gospel that would damn them. So look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 real quick. For as as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse... For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So here are this group of people, Jews, many of them, who had come out from under the law by redemption in Christ. And then in came a group of people who said, No, you need to get back under the law. Put yourself back under the law. That's where that's where it's happening. That's where salvation and sanctification take place is by obeying the works of the law. So Paul says, No, you put yourself under the law, you put yourself under a curse. Because cursed is every person who does not keep the full law. If you try and keep all of the law and you fail in one point, just one thing, all you have to do is fail one time and you have broken the whole law. So you're cursed if you put yourself back under the law. Now look at verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by his faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So what does the law do? Was the law given to save us? No. Was the law given to sanctify us, to make us holy? No. The fact that no man can be justified, that is declared righteous in the sight of God, forgiven for his sins, the fact that no man can be declared righteous by the law is evident from all of the Old Testament. The law was not given to declare us righteous. The law was not given to make us righteous in practice. The purpose of the law was that the law, when we see ourselves in light of the law, the intention of the law was that we might be condemned, not justified, not acquitted and forgiven of our sin, but that we might see our sin. So that I look at the holy standards of God's law and it says, Thou shalt not lie. And I say to myself, Guilty. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I've lusted in my heart. I'm guilty. You shall not dishonor your parents, guilty. You shall not steal, I'm guilty. Shall not take the Lord's name in vain, guilty. You shall honor the Lord your God above all other things, guilty. Honor the Sabbath day, guilty. Don't covet your neighbor's possessions, guilty. I am guilty, guilty, guilty on 10 out of 10 counts. I can't be justified by the law. The law shows me that I'm guilty. It pronounces me under a curse. I can't be declared righteous by it. We say, well, maybe the law can help you live a more righteous life. No, it can't. The law can't give me the power to not break it. The law only shows me that I do break it and that I break it regularly. And it pronounces me guilty before God, guilty in His sight, and it shows me that I am unable, unable to live to the standard that God has called me to live. I am unable to fulfill His law, and so I am guilty before Him. Now look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith that was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Now listen, this is why the law was given. All of the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments included, all of that was given to as a tutor, a schoolmaster, to tutor us, to bring us, to lead us, to drive us to Christ. So that we stand before the law and we say, I'm condemned. So I need something to take away my guilt. I need something inside of me that allows me to keep the law of God, gives me the power to keep the law of God. I need something to forgive me. And that's where Christ comes in, and the law drives me to Christ. Verse 24, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified, not by the works of the law, but by faith. 
But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise. So the law fulfilled its purpose in driving us to Christ. Now having been brought to Christ, would you go back under the law? No, Paul says. But you are like a child who having been set free from your tutor and arrived at maturity wants to go back to the immature and elemental things. Why having graduated from this, would you, to this, would you want to go back under this? That doesn't make any sense. That brings us to chapter 4, verse 1, where he's now using an analogy or an illustration that would have been familiar to everybody in Greek culture, everybody in Roman culture, and everybody in Jewish culture. 4, verse 1, Now I say, as long as an heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. As using an analogy or an illustration from their culture. In those cultures, they had, in Greek culture, Roman culture, and Jewish culture, they all had an event at which time a boy became a man. You graduated from childhood to manhood. There was none of this evolutionary idea of adolescence where you just allow teenagers to run wild and disobey their parents. You say, well, they're teenagers. No, when you went from being a child to a man, you grew up. And you went from being somebody who you understood was a child, who had no legal responsibilities, to somebody that you expected to conduct and, and um, act like an adult. And they all had an event, some of them at different ages. Some of them entailed different things. It was different in every culture. But let me give you the Jewish example. That was the bar mitzvah. On the first Sabbath, after a boy turned 12 years old, they had a ceremony down at the synagogue where the father would pronounce his 12-year-old boy a son of the law. Not a son-in-law, but a son of the law, meaning he was now had gone from being a child to being an adult who was a son of the law, meaning that he was now responsible to obey And he was personally obligated to keep the entire law. He went from being a child to being an adult. At 12 years old, that was the expectation. At 12, not at 18, 22, 25, at 12, he became a son of the law. Before that time, though that child may have owned all of his father's things, and though he may be an heir by right, that is, by virtue of his birth, he was not an heir in fact. So he moved from being, at the age of 12, he moved from being an heir to his father's things, just by right, to being an heir to all of his father's things by fact. So that he now had control and possession. And he went from being under all of his schoolmasters and his tutors and his guardians and his masters, acting and conducting and being treated like a slave, to now being treated like an adult. And so here's Paul's analogy. Having gone out from underneath the law, which was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, under which we were condemned and cursed, you have been now brought to the point of being adulthood, full-fledged sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now you have gone to being an heir of everything. Why would you willingly place yourself back under the law and regress and go back to being like a slave? What happened? What was it that God did that moved us from being under the curse of the law, taking us out from under that, and making us sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ? Now we get to verse 12. Sorry, not verse 12, verse 4. (laughs) I don't know where 12 came from. Now we get to verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, and that we might receive the adoption of the sons. There's three things worth noting. First, the timing 
the timing of Christ's coming, second, the nature of Christ's coming, and then third, the results of Christ's coming. The timing of it, when the fullness of the time came. That's a phrase that literally means when the time was filled up. It was sort of a, a figure of speech that you can picture a cup being filled up as time goes on, and when it reaches its brim, when it reaches the top, when it can't stand no more, it cannot take any more, then it's full. Well, when the time had reached its ripeness, its fullness, when the time was perfect, it's a phrase that literally means when in the fullness of God's redemptive plan, the timing of this event was perfect. And when the timing was perfect, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Have you ever wondered why God sent his son 2,000 years ago, 2,010 years ago, instead of during the days of Noah or during the days of Abraham or during the days of David or Daniel? Why at that point in time? Why after 400 years of silence between the last Old Testament prophet that spoke of the Messiah and the actual birth of Christ? Why at that point in that time in human history? What was God doing? And there may be thousands or even millions of reasons why God chose that time, but it was a perfect time. And you and I can look back on it and say, in the providence of God and in the wisdom of God, there's something incredible that was going on and something masterful in God's design. And I would just point out a couple of things that were happening at the time that made it a perfect time for the coming of the Son of God. In that culture and in that time, basically the entire world spoke a common language, almost the entire known world, because most of the then known world was ruled by Rome. And if you wanted to do business with Rome, have commerce with Rome, be blessed by Rome, and not face the fury of Rome, you spoke Rome's language, which was Koine Greek, the common Greek language. It was the, the language of the realm, the coin of the realm, as it were. It was the language of commerce. Everybody spoke it. And so that made it easy for the Christian gospel to go from point A to point B and to spread very rapidly, very quickly, because the apostles didn't have to learn another language when they went to a different country, a different region, or a different area. Everybody spoke Greek, and it made the gospel able to spread like wildfire. On top of that, Rome had built a system of roads that connected everybody for commerce sake and for traveling and convenience sake. And so people were able to travel long distances very quickly and very easily compared to before that which also made the spread of the Christian gospel easy. On top of that was what they called the Pax Romana, which meant the Roman peace. And that is that under the Roman Empire, it was a time of peace for almost a century, a time of basic peace without without revolutions and without uprisings and without any sort of significant wars being fought. It was a very peaceful time, and so people were satisfied, and there was a lot of commerce that went on, and people traded information. That is why the gospel was able to spread from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the Roman Empire in a matter of 30 years in that day, without the Internet, without telephone, radio, television, the printing press. 30 years. And everybody knew it. How is that? Because the timing was perfect in the plan of God. And not only that, but the timing was perfect because by that time the law had done the work that the law was intended to do. And what was the law intended to do? To drive people to Christ. And messianic expectation was at a fever pitch. People were waiting for the Messiah. They were expecting the Messiah. And they looked at the law and they said, we can't keep this. We know that we're sinners. And the law had done its work to prepare people for the arrival of the Messiah. And the timing was perfect. Do you realize that when God determined to send his son, he did not throw a dart at a timeline. Nor did he brood over human history looking for his opportunity, wondering if it would come, finally seeing a good chance and so send his son. None of that. It wasn't circumstance. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't chance by any stretch of the imagination. It was the perfect timing of God. When the fullness of the time came, the timing was perfect because God is working out a redemptive plan in redemptive history. From beginning to end, it's his plan to redeem a people for himself 
And he is working it out from the moment of creation all the way through until the consummation of all things in the new heavens and the new earth. All of it is part of God's eternal redemptive plan. At the perfect moment, he sent his son. And look at the second part of that verse, verse 4. It shows us the nature of Christ's coming. He was born of a woman and born under the law. Now, something about his nature. Verse 4 describes for us the nature of Christ. And there's two phrases in there that just don't seem to go together. Son of God, born of a woman. Those two phrases seem diametrically opposed to each other. How do you get both of those things together? Son of God, born of a woman. doesn't seem like they should fit. How is it that somebody who is the Son of God, and by Son of God, when we call Christ the Son of God, we don't mean Son in the same sense that you and I are sons of God by adoption. We mean that He was by nature the very unique, the only begotten, that's what only begotten means, the very unique Son of God. He was Son of God in a special sense. Not by adoption, but by nature, because He shared the nature of God. So that phrase, Son of God, is an indication of Christ's 100% full deity. He was... God in the fullness of God's nature and in the fullness of God's essence. That is his deity. What was the nature of Christ? He was 100% man. Hebrews says that Jesus was the exact representation of God's nature. Hebrews 1.3. Colossians 2.9. In him dwells all the fullness of God, of the Godhead in bodily form. John 1.1. He was in the beginning with God. He was God. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Philippians 2 says that he existed in the form of God. And though he enjoyed equality with God, he did not regard that as something to be held on to at all costs for his own advantage. But instead, he emptied himself. That is, he let go of that position of equality. Not equality by nature, but that position. And he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. And he came in the form of a servant in the likeness of men. He was fully God. That's why the hymn writer, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. His full deity. He was 100% God. He was the Son of God. And then that second phrase, and there's actually two of them that speak of his humanity, born of a woman and born under the law. Let's take each one of them in turn. Born of a woman, what does that mean? Born of a woman. Some people read that, and some people have said, well, that's evidence or a text that deals with the virgin virgin birth of Jesus, that he was born of a virgin. Since Paul mentions born of a woman, but doesn't say born of a woman and a man, therefore Paul here is teaching the virgin birth. I believe the virgin birth. I believe scripture teaches the virgin birth. I just don't believe this scripture teaches the virgin birth. This scripture is not addressing the virgin birth. This scripture is addressing an equally glorious and equally important doctrine, and that is the humanity of Jesus. He was born of a woman. He was a man. And he came into the world in a very ordinary way, through a very ordinary woman, a sinner just like everybody in this room. And through that very ordinary woman in a very ordinary way, in a very ordinary land, Before ordinary people, next to ordinary animals, on an ordinary night, this extraordinary son was born. But he was born of a woman, and that describes his humanity. Like when Job says, we are born of a woman as the sparks and destined for trouble like the sparks fly upward. It's just a description of his humanity. He came in the flesh, and he was a man, a human being, just like you and I. 
which means that he was subject to all of the temptations and the trials and the limitations and the difficulties and the hindrances to which humanity itself is subject, all except for anything that is sinful. He was without sin. He didn't have sin. He knew no sin. There was no sin in him. And so everything that is part of humanity, all of the limitations that are part of being human without being sinful, he also shared in all of that. He partook of flesh and blood and shared in humanity just like you and I share in humanity. He was fully God, and he was also fully man. He was born of a woman. And, Paul says, he was born under the law. Now, that one phrase, born under the law, is a phrase that I wish we I had a whole sermon just to unpack for you, but I don't. And someday, maybe in the not-too-distant future, when you preach through the book of Galatians, I'll take the time to do that because it's loaded, loaded, I mean loaded with theological implications, that Jesus Christ was born not only of a woman, but he was born as a Jew and so also under the law of God. Born under the law. Now that means that the very one who was the maker of the law and the giver of the Old Testament law and the judge of the law and the executioner of the law himself was born under and lived under the law. And this is part of the whole argument of the book of Galatians. Not only was he born under the law, but he kept all of God's law perfectly. Perfectly. Being born under the law, he fulfilled passively and actively all of the righteous requirements of the law. All of them. All of them. And he fulfilled them on our behalf, which is how he redeems us from under the law. And I'm going to explain that in just a second. But that phrase describes the humanity of the Lord Jesus. He is fully God. And he is also fully man. He was born of a woman, and he was born under the law, and he subjected himself to all of the righteous requirements of the law, and he lived those out and obeyed them perfectly, never erring in thought, word, or deed. And in his perfection, he fulfilled all of the Old Testament law on our behalf because he was born under it. So what is the nature of our Savior? Being fully God, he is also fully man. And all of the passages that I quoted to you earlier describe not only his full deity, in him dwells all the fullness of God in bodily form. He, Jesus, is the exact representation of the nature of God in bodily form. He is both God and man. Philippians 2, he existed in the form of God, and he didn't consider that as something to be held on to, but he emptied himself, took upon himself the form of a servant, and came in the likeness of what? Men. And he lived and dwelt and walked among us. We beheld his glory took upon himself flesh, and he looked from all outward appearances just like any ordinary man. You would have bumped into him in a crowd, you wouldn't have noticed it. You would have thought he was just an ordinary Jew. Nothing special about his appearance, no glowing halo, no glowing face, no extra cleanliness, nothing about his haircut or his breath or his dress or his shoes that he wore or anything that made him special. Just an ordinary looking man. But he was both God and man. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, both God and man. And I'll explain the significance of why that had to be at the end of verse 5, because that's where that becomes important. So now third, I want you to look at the results of this. The results of this. This is in verse 5. So that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now he's describing their salvation. But he's using two different words, both of which are significant. They're part of salvation, but they're not synonyms. And that is redemption 
and adoption. Those are two different things. Both of them are part of God's eternal salvation, His redemptive plan, redemption and adoption. All of those who have been adopted as sons of God have also been redeemed. And all of those who have been redeemed are also adopted as sons of God. There are no redeemed orphans who have been redeemed but not adopted, and there's none who are adopted that have not been redeemed. But these are two different things, so let's deal with each one of them. What is redemption? He came and was born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem us who were under the law. We were under the law. Remember, we were under the curse, condemned, guilty. And the just wrath of God hung over our head because guilty people should not go free. Guilty people should get the punishment that they deserve. So we were guilty under the law. But God is also long-suffering, and He is kind, and He is good, and He is merciful to all who will call upon Him. And He does not delight in the death of the wicked. And so He did something to take those who were under that curse and remove them out from under the curse. He bought our redemption, and He did it by being born under the law and living under the law and dying under the curse of the law as a sacrifice for those who had violated the law. So he bore our penalty on our behalf, and thus he redeemed us from under the curse of the law. Redemption is the word ek agarazo in the Greek, ek meaning out of. Agarazo was the word that meant to purchase or to buy something back. And so it was used of a slave whose freedom had been purchased. They had been bought out of or bought back from a marketplace, like a slave marketplace. And so this is a perfect word to describe us who have been purchased or bought out of, redeemed, by the blood of Christ, by his sacrifice and his death, from under the curse of the law, and we've been brought out of that. So now what is my relationship to the law? Because he was born of a woman and born under the law, he is able to take me out from under the law, so now my relationship to the law has changed. No longer does it condemn me, no longer does it judge me, and no longer will I be executed by its just requirements. I've been removed out from underneath of that, and now I am no longer under the law, but I am in Christ, who is my refuge and my shelter, who lived a perfect life on my behalf, and he has redeemed me, bought me out of slavery to the law. Is it not insanity that anybody would look at that and say, but I want to go back. I want to go back. I want to make myself keep the Sabbath. I want to make myself observe the festivals. I want to make myself observe the feasts. I want to go back under that law, under the burden of it and the guilt of it, and use that to try and save me and sanctify me. What foolishness is that? You've been removed out from underneath of the curse by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The second phrase is adoption. Redemption is the act of taking something that is is under the curse of the law and redeeming it or buying it back out of through the blood of Christ from under the curse of the law, so you're removing it from the curse of the law. Adoption is something different. Adoption is taking that which has been redeemed and not leaving it as it is, but adopting it into the family of God. Through him we have received the adoption as sons. He was born under the law so that he might redeem those who are under the law and that we might receive adoption as sons. So now we're not just purchased from under the law, but we're actually adopted into the family of God and given all of the rights and all of the privileges and all of the standing and all of the blessings that are ours in Christ. And what is ours in Christ? Everything, everything is ours. All the grace, all the joy, every blessing in the heavenly places, everything you can conceive of and so much more, the new heavens and the new earth, glorified bodies, eternity with Him, eternal bliss, eternal joy, all of that is given to the sons of God. And we are sons of God how? By the works of the law? No. 
but by faith in Jesus Christ. So how is it that my faith in Jesus Christ makes me not only out from underneath the curse of the law, but gives me a status as a son, gives me sonship in the family of God? How is it that that is possible? It is possible because the one who came and was born of a woman and was born under the law lived out a perfect life under the law and fulfilled all of the righteous demands of the law. And then that righteousness that is his is given to me by faith. It is imputed to me, credited to my account, so that God looks at me not only as an unguilty sinner, but as somebody who has actually kept every bit of the law and fulfilled all of the righteous demands. Have I done that? Not for one day of my life. Not even for one hour of my life. Not for ten minutes of my life have I met all the demands of the law. Never have I done that. So how is it that God can look at me as if I have done that? Because He was born under the law and He lived it on my behalf. All of His righteousness and His law keeping, guess what? It's credited to you and I. It becomes mine. And all of my sin and breaking of the law, guess what? It's credited to Christ and it becomes His. And He bore it on the cross, the full wrath of the Father against all my sin. And He looks at me as if I had lived the life that His Son lives. How is that possible? By faith. A man is not justified by the works of the law. A man is justified by faith. By faith in whom? By faith in the one whom God sent to be born under a woman and born under the law so that He might take us out from underneath the law and adopt us and give us sonship. Now, why is it important that he, this person who does this, be both God and man? Do you realize that if God had sent an angel, and this is hypothetical stupidity, but if God had sent an angel, salvation wouldn't have been possible? If God had sent a special animal, salvation wouldn't have been possible? God could not have sent an ordinary man or even an extraordinary man or even a superman to be our Savior. None of those things would have been possible. The only person who could bear the wrath of God on our behalf was somebody who was both God and man. Now, he had to be fully God for this reason. The sin debt that I alone incurred was not a finite sin debt. It was an infinite debt. Because I have sinned against an infinite being. And so my sin is infinitely offensive and has incurred an infinite penalty. That is why, apart from Christ, I would be punished for all of eternity. Because even eternity in hell will never pay the sin debt that I deserve. And I'm just speaking for Jim Osmond. I'm not speaking for everybody else in this room. Now you take my sin debt and you add it to your sin debt, and what is infinity plus infinity plus infinity times a million? Still infinity, is it not? So who is it that can bear that sin penalty and pay the just price for that sin? It had to be an infinite person with infinite value, infinite worth, and infinite righteousness. Only that type of infinite person could pay such an infinite penalty. That is why Jesus Christ had to be God. Now, why did He have to be man? Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, and no angel can stand in the stead of men. A man must die in the place of another man. So He had to be man so that He could be fully human and sympathize with us and pay the debt on our behalf. And He had to be God so that He could adequately pay the debt on our behalf. Friends, that is our Savior, both God and man. Meekness and majesty in perfect harmony, the man, de- uh, humanity and deity, this is our God, fully God, fully man, in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who while he walked among us here was entirely righteous for you, 
died as a penalty to pay the penalty that you deserve for your sin. And he bore the wrath of God on behalf, not of everybody, but of all who will trust him. And if you are sitting here today and you reject Jesus Christ and you will not turn from your sin and you will not embrace him as Savior, you will bear the infinite wrath of the eternal God on yourself for all of eternity. So what is Christmas all about? He came to save his people from their sins. He came to pay the sin debt. He came not just to warm our hearts and give us a season for greetings and giving, but friends, he came to redeem us from under the law and to adopt us as his sons. That is our Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do rejoice before you in such a marvelous salvation, such a wonderful redemption plan, that you have saved us and that you have redeemed us and that you have taken the wrath on our behalf that we can trust you and we look forward to nothing but your smile for all of eternity. An eternal joy and eternal bliss and eternal glory shared with you and your son. We thank you for the hope that is set before us. We thank you for bearing the penalty on our behalf. We could never have paid the sin debt that we had racked up against you. We would sinned against an infinite person. We thank you that you sent an infinite Savior to bear that wrath and to pay that penalty. We thank you that we are in him and not under the law. And we thank you that you have bestowed upon us such grace and kindness. Make us, O God, to reflect upon these things this time of year, that our celebration and our rejoicing may not be in vain, but may be a celebration of the God-man, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.